back to the Logically Faithful Podcast. This is Calhoun Swice. I will be your host. I am Associate Professor of Philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago. I also tutor of Philosophy of Religion with Oxford University. I am a, a husband of one wife and just two children. I'm glad you've joined me on this podcast where we seek to give credible answers to life's deepest questions about God, faith, and Christianity. Navigating through the deepest, darkest tunnels of life, using evidence to ground that and guide us through. Thank you for being with me. This is season two, episode number nine. Well, welcome to the Logically Faithful Show. This is Keldun Swice, uh, your host. I'm. Thank you for being with us. I have with me today a very special guest, Dr. Mike Lacona. He is one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Christian apologists, and historian. Associate Professor of Theology also at Houston Baptist University and Director of Risen Jesus. You should check that website out. Amazing material there. Mike has offered and worked on over seven books. I'm sure he probably has a few wooden works right now. Don't you, Mike? <laughs> I do, actually. I've got one on the historical reliability on the Gospels that should be out in a few years because I'm still in the research phase. Uh-huh. And then another on uh, just a devotional on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, thank you for joining us for our show. Um, as uh, this is, We look forward to um, the, the books that you have coming forward, and I'm sure I'll grab those and get my paws on them. Um, now, as you know, the, the, the mission of this particular podcast is to help believers really think through their faith and to analyze the issues in a, in a way that brings them fulfillment and purpose. But dealing with suffering and, and navigating through the darkness of life, using evidence to do that. And I know, Mike, in your journey, as you began uh, in your career in theology and philosophy, specifically in apologetics, you went through a dark time, a period of doubt, a dark night of the soul. Can you walk us through some of that journey, um, how, uh, like, into the journey itself, and then how you actually uh, started to slowly make your way out? With how the evidence actually helped you? How God used that? Uh, sure. Uh, well, Cal, dude, thanks for having me on too. Um, it was my last semester in grad school back in the fall of 1985. Um, and I was uh, in an MA in New Testament studies program, um, just finishing up my last course. And I started to have some doubts about the Christian faith. For the first time in my life, in my early 20s, I began asking the question, how do I know that this is actually true? Um, now, I have to admit at that point, I had a really healthy prayer life. I was spending a few hours a day studying the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like I had a pretty, like I said, a healthy relationship with the Lord. But then I started to ask myself the question, is this really true or am I just brainwashing myself? Right. right. Um, is it a big joke I, of some sort? Yeah, it's like, uh, well, you know, Mormons think they have that intimacy, right. burning in the bosom, they call it. Uh-huh. Um, you, you know, people of other religious faiths, uh, are every bit as convinced of the truth of their faith as I was of mine. Uh, so, how do I know Christianity is true? And before I really spend the rest of my life devoted to Jesus, uh, I want to make sure it's true. So that really started to to cause to raise questions and doubts. And I went and spoke with Gary Habermas at that point. Someone referred me to him. Some of his uh, students. And I never had Gary for a course because I was in New Testament. He was in philosophy and apologetics. And to be honest with you, Khaldun, 
Um, even though some of my roommates were involved in a master's of master of arts degree in Christian apologetics, I had no interest whatsoever in apologetics. It's like, who cares about what David Hume, a dead philosopher from more than 200 years ago, nearly 300 years ago, or 200 years ago, who cares what he said? Mm. Um, that this is, uh, I'm more interested in what Jesus said. I know that Christianity is true. I don't need to study apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just interested in following the Lord. But it was my particular questions right. that that uh, it's like, wow, well, this is really important. I want to make sure Christianity is true. And all of a sudden, apologetics did become important. It became the most important thing to me at that point. Um, so that's what got me involved in it. And I went through several decades, I guess you could say, on a roller coaster ride. Sometimes I'd be confident in my faith. Sometimes I'd be... I have no idea if Christianity is true. May I ask you, what, what are some of the, or one or two of the, if you're willing to share, some of the issues sure. that, that did uh, darken uh, the light that, that you thought was there? What were some of the doubts? What were some of the questions that you asked, Gary, or the ones that you made yourself, uh, that, that made you really go through that darkness? Yeah, well, there were stages. You know, initially when I talked to Gary, uh, he was very welcoming. He was not condemning in the least. It was more of, yep. Hey, listen, I've struggled with doubts myself, and a lot of seminarians come into my office here, and they have doubts, so you don't have to feel weird in any sense. It's common. Mm. And he pointed out to me how C.S. Lewis, after he became a Christian, he was being interviewed, uh, I think, on the BBC, and they asked him if he ever doubted his Christian faith. And he says, yeah, he doubted his Christian faith at times, but he said, to be honest, when he was an atheist, he often doubted his atheism, and there were times when Christianity looked more reasonable to him. Uh-huh. And then Gary told me that, uh, you know, he had a really good relationship with the atheist philosopher, or I should say once atheist philosopher, Anthony Flew, because, yes, Flew. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, a few years before his death, Flew uh, be, uh, became a deist. He believed God existed. He just didn't think he intervened in our world. Um, and he asked he said, Tony, you know, we're friends. And they were riding in the car and said, do you, Tony, do you ever doubt your atheism? And he says, Gary, I doubt my atheism all the time, every day. Hmm. So the, I think that is just enlightening to know that when you're really honest about it, you know, uh, I found that Gary Habermas had doubted. I found that C.S. Lewis had doubted. I found that even the one of the most influential atheist philosophers of the 20th century, Anthony Flew, doubted on a frequent basis. Um, doubting, uh, Gary had pointed out in one of his books that John the Baptist doubted. Mm-hmm. You know, you had John the Baptist uh, send, while he's in, in jail, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one or are we to expect someone else? This was an embarrassing moment for Jesus. You know, because there was his wingman right there right. who had been pointing everybody to him, and he's doubting. So, um, you know, the, I think that just Abraham doubted. You know, God had appeared to him physically and promised that he was going to have children, and a nation would come from that. And when it came down and he goes into Egypt, you know, during a famine, he tells Sarah to lie so that they will, and say she's a sister, so that they won't kill him. So obviously he's not thinking God's going to rescue him at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's lacking faith, and yet later on, Abraham comes to be in the Faith Hall of Fame. In fact, he's the MVP in Hebrews chapter 11. So 
all you know all these great heroes of the faith Abraham and of John the Baptist Jesus said no greater man has been born of, born of woman than John the Baptist so I figured you know if he can say that about John the Baptist and John the Baptist doubted and he had more to go on I'd say than I do uh, two thousand years later right. then God's not going to condemn me for doubting wow so okay so it's, so it's, I had those periods they were just on and off on and off on and off and um, yeah. So people are not alone when you're doubting. There are other oh, people, greater, no. powerful, more more productive, of God, closer to God than we've ever dreamed, who've also doubted. So that's correct. Yeah, that's a pillar we can hold on to. You know, uh, if I may use a, a common day example, um, Charles Templeton, in contrast to uh, Billy Graham, uh, they both went through a period of intense doubt. Uh, Billy Graham records this in his work, and Templeton records it in, in, in his work, uh, Farewell to God where he doubted on the issue of, I think it was science and evolution, I think it was his main one. Uh, he has some others as well. Um, but th- they both came to that position where they both doubted. Billy Graham went one path where he continued in his faith, where he bowed his knee to God and continued. Templeton went the other path and gave up his faith and walked away from God, which ironically, it, they both went down the same path. What is it then that keeps people committed when you can have a, a divergence of views or when you can just... Go two different directions. What kept you there? Well, what kept me was the evidence. Hmm. That's what kept me. Um, because if the evidence had pointed away, I, and I, I got to the point when I was doing my doctoral work, and my wife can tell you, can testify to this, Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig can testify to this, my doctoral supervisor can testify to this, um, just a handful of people, actually, that I was sharing my, my doubts and and struggles with with this, they can tell you that I would have walked away from the faith. I was ready to walk away from the faith if the evidence pointed away from the resurrection of Jesus. Um, if historically speaking, there was a better explanation than the resurrection of Jesus. I was wrestling with this very seriously. It was keeping me up at night. I wrestled with it for years. Um, and one of the reasons that I engaged in public debate during that period, I would pray for months prior to a debate and say, God, if I am wrong on this, look, I believe that you exist. There's not, no question in my mind based on the scientific and philosophical evidence that, that God exists. Now, who is that God? And I said, whoever you are, um, I believed that it, that it was the Trinitarian God all these years, the God of Jesus. Um, but if I'm wrong, I said, God, if I'm wrong, I want to know, and I don't care what it costs me, and if you have to humiliate me in a debate, I'm fine with that. I am totally open at this point. That was my prayer, and it was my sincere prayer and my sincere journey and desire. Um, And so I studied hard, preparing for these debates, and I tried my best to try to engage people who were some of the finest skeptics out there, people like Bart Ehrman, people like Elaine Pagels at Princeton, people like Shabir Ali, the leading Muslim debater in the world. I, I, I didn't want to go against just no names. I wanted some of the brightest people out there because they didn't believe what I believed and they would be more inclined to see any errors or weaknesses in the case that I made because they didn't have the same biases that I had. Now, they had other biases, of course, of course, but they didn't have the same ones that I had. And so they would be more likely to reveal, be able to identify and reveal those problems in my view 
my case for the resurrection of Jesus. So, um, you know, now I've had 26 public debates, and I, I have to admit, I'm more convinced of the resurrection of Jesus than ever. So what really helped me get over my doubts uh, to conquer them uh, were, was the really good evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And knowing that I had studied this to the best of my ability with integrity. Now, nobody can do it with 100% pure motives mm-hmm. uh, or integrity. But, I, you know, in my heart, I know that I really wrestled with it honestly. My closest friends and family members know that I wrestled with it honestly. And so I can sleep well at night. Now, does that mean that I have the absolute correct answer? No. But it does mean that I gave it a very honest, sincere look that didn't span a couple of weeks or a few months or even a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But wrestling with this vigorously for five and a half years. Um, So that's what really helped me. Really? When you say the evidence helped you... uh is it possible then, because as you know, within cognitive biases that many of us have, we see the evidence, but we have this worldview, this, uh, these glasses that we put on that, that move the evidence one way or another based on our preconceptions, belief systems, and, and backgrounds. Um, so you can have two really good, honest people looking at the exact same evidence. And coming up yeah. with opposite conclusions, which always frustrated me as a philosopher. I said, hey, if I just show people the truth, they'll convince, they'll convert, they'll, 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 they'll agree. Oh, no, I was in for a rude awakening. And no, no, it's not just the truth itself that convinces. It's also all these backwards and the baggage that you bring to it as well. Um, and this, this baggage actually gets in the way, does it not? Um, how, it how does. Do you, how do you address that, the issue of cognitive biases as people approach um, evidence? Well, it's a great question, and that is the toughest thing to overcome for a historian when they're going to do their investigation with integrity. Mm. Um, and I recognized that I had my own biases. I wanted Christianity to be, to be true. And when I started off in my doctoral uh, research, I had the objective of proving the resurrection was true. And as I was reading philosophers of history, Um, and just spending a few years studying the philosophy of history and historical method and how to conduct a historical investigation with its integrity, I realized that I had this problem, that every historian has this problem. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an atheist or a Muslim or a Christian or whoever, whether you're conservative, moderate, or liberal Christian, we all have this problem. And so it's a matter of working to bracket our desired outcome while our investigation proceeds. So in chapter two of my large volume on the resurrection that resulted from all of my investigation here, I talk about, um, actually chapter one, I talk about six steps that we historians can take that will put their horizon, their biases in check while their investigation proceeds. And so I tried my best to follow these. Can you tell me again, where where exactly is that, so I can put that in the show notes? Yeah, it's chapter one of my book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. Oh, is that the the massive, wonderful tome that you (laughs) invested (laughs) so much of your life into? Okay, chapter one, all right. Uh, You got those, 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 those tips are not just for historians, I imagine, they'll be for anybody looking at evidence. Sure, uh, sure. And and those things really help. And they do not guarantee, no amount of method 
will guarantee that historians can be completely neutral. Nobody will ever be absolutely neutral. And even there were times where I thought that I was neutral, and I may have been, you have to make a, I found that you have to make a concerted, deliberate effort to remain in that state of mind, or else if you don't, and you say, okay, well, I'm completely neutral at this point, and then you just go on your merry way, mm-hmm. you will fall back to your default biases. It's and so you, you have to work to getting there, and then you have to work to staying there. And even so, you still have your desired outcome that you are battling constantly uh, that wars against the integrity of your research. So unless you are committed mm-hmm. to doing research in its integrity, it is not going to happen. Hmm. Would you find, then, when you're doing that, does it matter the people that you surround yourself with? I found that the, um, when I changed the people that I spent time with in the last few years, it's altered and revolutionized my life. Um, somebody once said that the, you are the sum total of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm. Um, and, and that changed how I think. Um, the more time I spend with um, Nietzsche and reading all the negative works, it started affecting my spirit. Then I started reading Augustine. There was a different, there was a contrast there. I'm not just talking about in research, but also the people physically around me, my social environment. Uh, how, how does, uh, do you recommend people uh, engage that, or is that irrelevant to actually studying um, the work that you're going Well, through? it depends who you are. If you are uh, a church member and you're not into academic work, um, then I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you do that. Okay. Um, the task of a scholar is different than uh, the task of a Christian scholar can be different, not necessarily, but it can be different than the task of the average Christian who's sitting in the pew. Our, as Christian scholars, you and I, Caldoun, are, you know, we have a responsibility to deal with these things, wrestle with them, and then break them down, put the cookies on the lower shelf, as I've commonly heard it, um, to, to make this accessible to the person in the pew. So we're tasked with doing the hard, rigorous, academic work and then making this accessible to the person in the pew. We shouldn't expect the person in the pew, because a lot of them are going to be weak believers, new believers, even old believers who never really matured much in their faith. Uh, we don't want to put them in a position where they're they're not equipped or, or able to, to work with these things. But for someone like you, for someone like me, um, who are wrestling with these kind of issues, yes, I think it is necessary to do this. And you know what I found? Mm-hmm. A lot of the people with whom I disagree, um, when I meet with them, uh, whether it's through a debate or sitting down and talking with them, Mm -hmm. you know, I I find that they're not the monsters that a lot of people in the Christian community want to make them. Now, I've never sat down with a Richard Dawkins or some militant atheists like that, okay? Um, But... (laughs) You know, when, when I, I sat down after my lengthy debate a few years ago with the atheist philosopher Evan Fales, we sat down and had dinner together, and then we spent the evening together just talking and hanging out. Had a great time. He's not a monster. He's a, he's a really a great guy, and he's fun to talk to. Um, I enjoy my friendship with Dale Martin, mm. who just retired from Yale, who is not anywhere like where I am. Or I enjoy being around Bart Ehrman 
who is nowhere near like where I By am. By the way, I loved your debates with him. You just you just creamed it. You did an amazing job. <laughs> wow. Well, thanks, <laughs> Talk brother. about strengthening my faith more than anything else. Watching pastors, um, one of my favorite pastors in the past, uh, Erwin Luster said that people don't change when they see the light. They change when they feel the heat. <laughs> Sometimes the evidence can be so strong, it feels like heat, doesn't it? Uh, that you have to just say, I- I'm going to have to give in and just accept this. Um, and that's where I want to move us, uh, start landing this plane as we move in. You listed in, on your blog, on your website, Risen Jesus, which I recommend to everyone, that there are four or five steps people can take as they, as they go through doubt. Uh, one of them is you mentioned, of course, that doubting is normal. Yes. Uh, secondarily, you mentioned that recognizing that there is good evidence that exists for the truth of Christianity, specifically the resurrection of Jesus, which is your primary work. Yep. Uh, third, you said the recognize that the absolute certainty is unreasonable expo- expo- um, expectation. Uh, absolute certainty is an unreasonable explanation um, uh, expectation. And finally, you said recognize that faith is more than just a feeling or being without doubt. Can you expand on that last one? Because a lot of people think faith and feeling are just summarized in doubt, or at least in the common vernacular. Uh, religion seems to be some kind of choice, like you make either a Republican, Democrat, join a <laughs> yoga club, join Christianity or Islam. It's all feelings. No one's better than the other. Now, we can get into the debate about exclusivity, etc., the truth claims. But specifically, an issue of faith being more than just a feeling, or doubt being more than a feeling. Can you expand on that and help us? Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you will permit me, can I just say something real quickly about the third one, that recognizing that absolute certainty is an unreasonable expectation? Course, can I just say course. something real quickly on that? Of course. Okay. I, I came to recognize a few years back that my temperament, my personality is such, the way I'm wired is doubting is, it's more than normal for me. <laughs> it's, it's a... Uh, it's one of my idiosyncrasies, and it's not just my faith that I've doubted over the years. I, I could go purchase a bottle of cologne, and I've done this in the past, and within 10 minutes, I'm taking it back to the store after wrestling whether I should have bought that or a different one for 20 minutes. It, I mean, it's just crazy, Caldoun. Um, and I, it's just, I second-guess everything, wow. even stupid little things. So if that's going to be the case... When I recognize that that is the way I am, recognizing that uh, I doubted my faith because it's so much more important, right? Um, that that was an eye opener to me. All right, so it showed that it was emotional doubt for the most part, not intellectual doubt. So on to the fourth point. So, wait, wait, uh, let me stop there for a moment. <laughs> you, yeah. must have, you must have put your uh, then uh, wife fiance through <laughs> rigorous questions before you got married, given how much oh, you had. I did. <laughs> I know I drove my wife crazy with all the questions I had. I wrote her a letter with footnotes and everything <laughs> before we got uh, engaged. Uh, with doubts. So I, I hear you. I feel you. All right. Uh, so some people are just, that's their disposition and recognize yeah, that. Yeah. And think about this. I've, I've come to say it this way over the past year uh, in my lectures. You know, I'll be up on the stage and I'll say, let's suppose someone puts a plank on the stage and it's six feet wide and it goes from one end of the stage to the other. And they say, Mike, I want you to walk on this plank. I just don't want you to step off the plank during your lecture. I could do that very easily. In fact, I could run the length of the plank. I could run backward the length of the plank. I could do cartwheels on that plank and I might hurt myself, but I wouldn't fall off that plank. Uh, All right. Now, but take that same plank. 
and span it between two skyscrapers 500 feet above the ground, well, I know I could do it, but I'm going to worry. And the reason I'm going to worry is not that I couldn't do it. It's because the consequences of missing, of making a mistake, are too horrible to imagine, to even think about. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't want to do it, even though I, I know I could do it easily. Well, the same thing, when I look at the evidence for God's existence and the evidence for the truth of Christianity, I look at it and say, the evidence is really, really, really good. But it, what keeps me up at night and causes me to doubt sometimes, even today, is what if I'm wrong? What if I missed something? Right, right. Uh, so it's it's emotional doubt. It's not intellectual doubt. And that and leads I think to that's question, important right? for us to know. Okay. That leads to that question, and that was uh, with your final point, that faith is more than uh, feelings and doubt is more than feelings. Yeah. Uh, um, well, when I get on a plane, and I fly quite often, um, in fact, uh, uh, a month ago, my wife and I flew to Israel, and our uh, first time there, and it was a long flight. It was like 12, 13 hour, 14 hours, something like that. And, you know, we're flying over the Atlantic Ocean. Now, I had some good evidence that that plane was going to make it based on the track record and the lack of plane crashes. But it still took faith to get on that plane because I was not assured. It was a reasonable faith that I got on that plane. Now, there are times when I might be going through my Christian life and I might be experiencing doubt. And let's suppose that, um, you know, I'm uh, at a hotel room one night, I'm on a trip, and some prostitute shows up at my door, hmm. and I'm tempted. And maybe I'm experiencing doubts. And I'm thinking, well, well, if God doesn't exist, if Christianity isn't true, I'd be free to do this hmm. with no moral qualms. Hmm. You know, except let, let, let my wife down, whom I love, and I wouldn't want to do that. But, you know, at a moment of weakness or temptation, you don't know. Um, if I'm experiencing doubt, that could motivate me to just please myself at that point. Right. But faith is, I might be experiencing doubt, but I am going to go ahead and I'm going to continue to live what my head is telling me is true. And so I, I live the life of holiness I, as best as I can. I make that commitment to live in a manner that would please God to the best of the ability, my knowledge of how to do that, in spite of the fact that I might experience doubts. Faith is more than a feeling. It's a commitment mm -hmm. to live my life as though it's true, because I do believe it's true. Lord, I believe you help my unbelief. Interesting. So you say faith is more than just a belief, uh, a, a feeling, or a, a disposition. It's it's a commitment to live yeah. that out. Any final words as we go ahead and wrap this up? Um, final words for our, for our listeners and the people out there who may be actually struggling even right now. Yeah, well, I'd say, look, join the club if you're struggling. Um, uh, you know, I still have doubts on occasion, and I probably will to the day I die. For the reason I mentioned to you about walking on that plank, how do we know? We, I mean, we can never know with 100% justified certainty until we die, and then we will know. <laughs> um, so, uh, it, and the consequences are potentially... Very tragic, unless we get this right. Now, if reincarnation is correct, then we'll have many chances to get this right. But um, if Christianity 
or Islam is true, we may only get one chance to get this right. So I want to make sure I get the right choice. Many of you want to make sure you get the right choice. Um, so if you are doubting, that's okay. Join the club. Abraham doubted. John the Baptist doubted. Many of us have doubted at times. C.S. Lewis doubted at times. Gary Habermas doubted at times. Um, join the club. It is normal. Just recognize there. It is normal to doubt, but sometimes it's just the way we're wired. A lot of times it's emotional doubt, and there is good evidence for Christianity. Make sure that uh, you have reasonable expectations, and um, uh, hopefully that helps. Uh, great. Thank you, Mike. And I would add, um, uh, going through doubt myself actually helped strengthen my faith when I came out of it. Uh, and, and nevertheless, I'm still struggling in one, one form or another, too. So, yes, so join the club and continue moving forward because the evidence is outstandingly out of this world. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> Thank you, Mike, for joining us. We appreciate it. God bless you, brother. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that was an amazing interview with Dr. Mike Lycona, who did some cutting-edge research on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Amazing work. I strongly recommend his work, his scholarly research, as well as his website, risenjesus.com. Thank you for being with me. Please leave a, re uh, a review on iTunes, because that will help me to continue doing what I'm doing better. If you appreciate the show, I appreciate you leaving a review. Now go make the world a better place, one life at a time. <laughs>